Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sibarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Finn Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, shipping editor of City Journal. Charles, in the therapeutic idiom that defines the opening of these podcasts, <laughs> how are you doing today? You know, it's 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 less of a therapy. It's 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 you know, it's it's a dude's talk podcast. We have to incorporate our listeners. They have to have a sense of what's going on in our lives. I'm good. I'm good. My kids started my kids started daycare slash preschool. They call it they call it it's a Montessori, so they call it school. And I'm just like, yeah, sure, whatever. He's running around and playing. It's daycare. My kids started daycare slash school last week. And he's he's successfully, he's like, you know, a week ago I like picked him up at 9.15. He like was really mad that he'd been there. And now I went to go pick him up at 1030 and they're like, no, nah, come back at 11. Like he he doesn't want to leave yet. So we've successfully completed that transition. Oh, so he so he likes the daycare. He likes the daycare. He's he's, he's 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 begun his lifelong journey in indoctrination. In indoctrination? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Boy, what are what are they teaching him at daycare? Well, actually, it's 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 a Jewish Montessori. So they're I guess they're teaching him to pour liquids into things and also about the Torah. I think there's some challah involved. I don't oh, really know. They try to explain these things to me, and I go, sure, why not? So there's not there's not too much about the fifty different genders yet. There's not too much. No, hopefully there's not too much about the fifty different genders. We cross that bridge, and there's there's very little. He's not being you know sorted into racial affinity groups because they're all Jews. That seems that seems good. It does. It's it 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 seems tangentially relevant. It seems tangentially relevant for our topic today, which is really which is really one of our like constant topics but new light aaron do you want to tell our listeners about what we're discussing today yeah so you know obviously recently we've we've done a lot of episodes on various aspects of the civil rights state and one of the things that keeps coming up is that despite having these civil rights laws that say you can't discriminate on the basis of race Companies all across America are discriminating on the basis of race. We've mentioned, you know, I, I went on some rant the other day about Google fellowship that capped the number of white and Asian applicants that universities can nominate for a fellowship. Pfizer does something similar where they just completely exclude whites and Asians from a prestigious program. More recently, you may have seen Bank of America uh, appears to be doing zero down payment, zero closing cost mortgages for blacks and Hispanics. You know, as we've discussed on this podcast, all of that is flagrantly illegal. But, you know, there's kind of always this question of, well, if it's all illegal, why do these companies keep doing it? And moreover, why are they never sued, right? And so what we're going to talk today about today is a kind of novel legal approach that our guest has pioneered. We'll introduce him in a minute, but basically a novel legal approach to kind of fighting back against woke reverse discrimination. In, in, in brief, what's fascinating about this is the approach basically is not to file civil rights complaints per se. It's to use a company's shareholders as legal leverage. You... We'll, we'll, we'll explain it in more detail in a minute, but the very basic idea is that you get shareholders to argue that a company's discriminatory illegal policies invite costly lawsuits and in so doing violate the company's fiduciary obligation to its shareholders. So this is basically an approach that uses the logic of shareholder capitalism against woke capital. I... I've been following this group for a little while. I think it's an interesting idea. But Charles, what's kind of your take on this this whole issue? Well, you know, I'm 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 I will say my primary exposure is in reading your reporting, talking to you about this. So, you know, on some level I'm just interested to learn more. You know, I'm I'm interested in different levers, and we've talked about this before, different levers that you can use to pull to respond to sort of cultural excesses. And you know, I think I think that there are there are real questions about the efficacy of political versus legal roots. Are, are lawsuits the right tactic? How do you get plaintiffs in lawsuits? How do you deal with the cultural pressures involved in getting plaintiffs in lawsuits? I.e., uh, how do you get somebody to sign on? I think our I think our guest is sort of interestingly positioned to answer that question. But then I'm more generally interested, you know, the the the, the mechanisms of using the court to respond to the sort of worst excesses of course corporate misbehavior. What what if anything can be done there. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tentatively positive. I'm mostly happy to learn more. What are your initial thoughts? 
Yeah. So, so I think there's, there's two arguments that have gained a lot of traction on the right in recent years that we're going to end up addressing in this podcast. So the first is that civil rights law causes wokeness. Obviously, that's a bit of an oversimplification. The folks like Richard Hanani and Christopher Caldwell who make this argument don't think that civil rights law is literally the only thing that causes wokeness. But, but they, they tend to have accounts that stress the role of law and the implication of a lot of these accounts, or at least one plausible implication one might draw from them, is that we should either repeal or, you know, at least seriously reform civil rights law, which is obviously going to be very hard to do and is controversial. And then there's kind of a separate argument, which is that wokeness and these kind of illegal DEI policies somehow serve the interests of capital, that they're kind of a way to divide the working class and keep them down while, you know, the rapacious forces of the neoliberal globalist regime get rich. And of course, then there's the there's an implication that capitalism itself is to blame for wokeism and woke capitalism. And what I like what I like about our guest's approach and something I think re- our audience will appreciate as we as we describe it is implicit in the approach is really a challenge to both of these arguments. The approach relies both on civil rights laws, so kind of old school racial liberalism, but also on shareholder capitalism and kind of a pretty aggressive, you know, free market, free market kind of legal, legal doctrine to resist woke capital. So I think it it's an interesting it's not just sort of a, a guide to how to fight back against wokeism. It also is sort of a potential response to, I think, some of the more radical currents on what you might call the post-liberal right. I think our guest actually sort of shows how you don't really need anything super fancy to resist this stuff. You can just use things that are pretty well-established parts of liberal democratic capitalism. So with that, let me introduce our guest, the man of the hour, we're talking today to Dan Morinoff. He is the director of the American Civil Rights Project, the group that has pioneered this kind of novel shareholder-based approach to fighting woke capital. He's practiced law at a number of law firms, and he's also a graduate of UChicago Law School. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the chance to, to talk with you about these things. So, so sort of, we like to start with an opening provocative question. You know, I think your group has more or less claimed that almost every major Fortune 500 in the country is flagrantly violating civil rights law with these anti-white and often anti-Asian policies. Okay, someone might ask, so then where are the lawsuits and why is it that we're not seeing class actions being filed left, right, and center against all of these companies? Right. So, let me start with the where are the lawsuits. The mm-hmm. first of our lawsuits made it to court last week. Uh, mm-hmm. Last week, we filed suing the officers and directors of Starbucks about a host of policies. And I'll tell you more about that, I'm sure, in a, a little bit. But the where are they? That they, They're coming. I can tell you that the reason that this is our first rather than the earlier parallel demands that we made to Lowe's like the Lowe's companies, that's the hardware chain or uh, Coca-Cola mm-hmm. because, and you know, they would tell you that they didn't in fact concede to our demands, but both of them took down the policies that we had complained were illegal. So I'm going to tell you they did. So mm. <laughs> there we are. So, you know, Starbucks didn't, it's the first one to make it to court. We've got four other demands currently outstanding and we're drafting another batch about, well, a number of the to a number of the corporations you mentioned earlier. So, and presumably we're not going to be the only ones filing these once we show that this model works. So I think that the answer is, you know, this is just making its way and things take time in the legal system. Nothing's as fast as you want it to be. There's probably also an answer there of the degree to which major law firms have been subject to institutional capture by ideologues who don't who prevent them from participating in hot button litigation or at least per participating in such litigation from one standpoint yeah so you know there's a whole story to tell there as well but right but so so just to 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 clarify so these 
your your approach, you're not actually filing direct civil rights complaints, right? Yeah, let's let's let, let's yeah. take a step back and say what, what walk us through. Yeah, you want to pull back civil rights? So, what do you guys? Think? There are a ton of, as you mentioned. I I mean, I don't think that we've particularly identified that every major corporation is doing X, but you know, there are certainly a lot that are quite a few. It's, an, it's a target rich environment. Yeah, say it that way, right? So with that said, right. You could imagine an approach to challenging such policies on what I would describe as a retail level of finding a particular person who was discriminated against, you know, by Starbucks in its reallocation of $700 million of supplier contracts based on the race of the ownership of its suppliers. And they could sue. They could challenge that policy. But of course, they could challenge that policy. They couldn't challenge the policies Starbucks has created of predicating who it hires and who it promotes at all corporate levels based on race because they wouldn't have standing. They aren't involved there. You would need to find a different plaintiff to bring that suit. And you could do this with with a number of institutions, right? Like there are, I think we've identified something like 10 policies that JP Morgan Chase has in place, yeah. which seemingly facially violate the law various laws, but you would need different plaintiffs for all of them. Uh, and and each plaintiff, I, I mean, I think this is an important thing. So like, I, I take it, you know, the, the average Joe who works at one of these companies, you know, they're not going to want to go and sue their employer. And they're certainly not going to want to sue their employer for anti-white discrimination. Given uh, you know, I, you could imagine why someone might have reservations about being the plaintiff suing their employer, saying that you discriminated against me in not letting me into the training program for future executives because of my race, which isn't to say that they wouldn't be within their rights to do so. They would, or that federal law wouldn't provide them with certain kinds of whistleblower mm. protections. But to be honest, if I were the lawyer advising them, I'd tell them you're going there they will engage in retribution against you just when they do you'll have yet another claim to bring against them for damages by the way if you brought one of these retail level suits i want you to think about what that means right like that means you know employee of starbucks or discriminated against vendor sues starbucks and if they're successful what happens they win a big judgment against starbucks so who pays that? Well, Starbucks does, which means Starbucks shareholders do. And how does that actually impact the officers and directors who've chosen to put into place all of these programs? Well, I mean, indirectly, if at all, right? Like, I mean, they don't own the company. Yeah. They answer primarily to institutional shareholders. Um, I haven't looked up the ownership percentages for Starbucks, but we know that what 80% of the S&P 500 is basically controlled by the big three ESG investment groups. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people who are, people who for ideological purposes are willing to replace, willing and able to replace the directors of Mobile Exxon in order to push their agenda, they certainly are going to have some sway over the willingness. This is a different story, obviously, and it would trigger a different set of responses by different actors. But, you know, they're going to have some sway and, you know, over who the officers are going forward. But if you are an officer who's deciding whether or not to, to pursue any legal policy and, you know, shoot, if you're a director and you know that your reelection is guaranteed because those people are going to be happy with you, regardless of how much corporate money you threw away on a vanity project, you know, what is your internal calculus? And is it something that's going to say, you know what, this is illegal. We shouldn't do it. Right. So that's kind of that's how one track of challenge would go. What we're doing is something a little different. I would describe it as a as a wholesale level challenge on behalf of, yes, shareholders. Shareholders saying you've knowingly adopted violations of law, that that's a violation of, yes, your fiduciary obligations of, you know, those get labeled different ways, a duty of care, a duty of loyalty. Uh -huh. You get the idea, right? Officers and directors are required to put the interests of their shareholders first to run a profitable enterprise. Mm -hmm. And usually, if you're talking about when we wind up in, when someone winds up in litigation about whether or not they've done so, courts do not want to second guess whether business executives made good choices. So as long as something was a reasonable exercise of business judgment, courts go, mm, too bad. They thought it'd be profitable. Go away. 
what we're taking advantage of is that in every state we've looked at, there's an exception to that general rule, which says that, yes, you, the business judgment rule will shield you whenever you, you were doing something you thought would be profitable. Ah, except that the way that Delaware courts describe this is the state doesn't charter of lawbreakers. Um, you might think that it would be really profitable for you to, you know, let's say that you're running a convenience store. You might think it would be really profitable to branch out your convenience store to also selling crack. And you might be very right that it would be very profitable, but your shareholders would still get to complain about it because it's obviously illegal. And if you, in fact, bet their money on breaking the law, even if you're, you have a good reason to believe it'll be profitable as long as you get away with it, that the courts will not smile at or shield from, from attack as, as, as a violation of fiduciary duties. There's another kind of claim we brought, which basically runs parallel to the fiduciary track. It argues it's ultra viris as a, a, a kind of claim. Ultra viris suits were really big 100 years ago. They all but totally disappeared at that point when the courts basically said, basically an ultra viris suit argues that corporate executives have exceeded their authority, that they've done something they're not authorized to do. So again, shareholders get to sue them about it. I should highlight this too, because it goes back to that decision-making calculus we were talking about. These aren't lawsuits against the company. These are lawsuits brought by shareholders against the officers and directors for what they've done. And the difference actually does matter because if they lose, they're the one who owns, who owes the company the harm they've worked. So this is a personal liability of the people who are actually in control. And it realigns the, the potential costs being inflicted with the control element of who is actually deciding whether to do the harmful thing, yeah. uh, which we think is a structural correction that's necessary in order to get people to internalize what it is that they're actually doing and betting their shareholders' money on obviously illegal programs. This is in some sense sort of an approach of the form that lots of activist investors or other people looking to pressure businesses take, right? There, 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 there are no behaviors that a company can take that do not in some way implicate shareholders. And so you see lots and lots of suits that are brought on the basis of your failure to ESG invest uh, is is implicating shareholders, is a threat to shareholders. And so you're failing your fiduciary duty. Can you talk through a little bit about why you think that you are likely to have success or you have some chance of success in in bringing these particular complaints sure. and if 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 you could explain to our listeners why you know what what a a what the heck fiduciary duty means in a legal context and b what delaware has to do with all of this that would be useful for right. i think sure let me start with that one first if you went back through american history you would see that most large corporations were originally chartered in New York. And then they were mostly chartered in New Jersey because New Jersey changed its corporate laws to be a more hospitable forum than New York was. And then this small state of, called Delaware that had basically no industries at all except chicken farming decided that it would one-up New Jersey and become the quintessential forum selective forum for corporations to set up. So most, though not all, large corporations for the last, I don't know, a bunch of decades have been chartered under Delaware corporate law. That's not always the case. There are also, Lowe's was chartered under North Carolina law, as an example, or Starbucks under the laws of the state of Washington. But most large corporations tend to be in Delaware. An awful lot of corporate litigation winds up being fought about in Delaware courts. And that winds up, as a result, being the most developed body of corporate law, which other states tend to just adopt without really scrutinizing too deeply themselves, whether it's a good idea or not. Um, so that's the Delaware side of this. What fiduciary means, look, a fiduciary, and you know, that's a fancy Latinate word, a fiduciary is like a trustee of a trust. Basically, it is someone who, for whatever reason, usually contractual, also imposed by state law, has the obligation to act on someone's someone else's behalf as they would on in their own behalf. So, you know, if someone was the, say, the trustee of an estate after someone dies, that's the same thing. 
But corporate officers and directors also have this highest level of duty to the people whose money they're in control of, the actual owners of the company, the, the individual shareholders. Right. I mean, and this is this gets at a kind of bigger issue in, in corporate law and even sort of the political theory of the corporation called the principal agent problem, right? That's right. ultimately what you're addressing, you know, that that there's principals whose money it is, but then there's the agents and the agents are behaving irresponsibly. And they have their own set of incentives, yeah. which will which may encourage them to do things which aren't in the interest of the the people whose agents they are. Uh, and, you know, fiduciary law is one of the primary checks our system places on folks facing those divergent interests, right? So that since you might have, you know, again, say that you're the, the trustee of a, an estate after someone dies, you might have a very strong interest to just take all the money yourself, but the law tries to encourage you not to do so by holding you to this, this much higher standard. And, and how much of this, just to clarify... Is the claim, it seems like you're claiming that they're they're violating their duties to shareholders in in a number of ways. it's It's That's partly correct. right. It's partly that like by inviting these costly suits there, they're not going to be maximizing shareholder value potentially. But it's also that the mere act of using someone's money for something illegal, correct. Even if that did, you know, it's a per Maximize se. Maximize shareholder bad. Yeah. Can't do that legally. Right. So that's a violation right. of your obligations, whether or not it was profitable. But also, it it should be expected to work real financial harms. Like, I'll give you an example of why. One of the main statutes that's implicated here, it's currently codified as Section 1981, the U.S. Code, 42 U.S.C. 1981. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the main surviving provisions of the very first Civil Rights Act passed in American history, the the Civil Rights Act of 1866. That was the one which the 14th Amendment was eventually written and ratified to constitutionalize, right? So 1981 makes it illegal for people to make contracting decisions based on race. Full stop. That's what it, I mean, it doesn't, it's strangely written because it was written in the 1860s. The mm. courts are unanimous that that's what it means, especially after its amendment in 1991. But that's right. So our argument is what you're doing is illegal. Since you are doing something that's illegal with our corporation, that's a violation of your duties. It's also something, by the way, 1981, 1981 by statute opens up its defendants to both uncapped economic damages and uncapped punitive damages for intentional violations. All of these are intentional violations. So if you'd like to imagine how broad the set of plaintiffs are who could bring a claim against a global organization who has decided that it's going to discriminate in hiring at every level, as well as against its vendors, I mean, like, it's like mm -hmm. it's it's an almost incalculable, incalculably large set of plaintiffs, all of whom could bring suit seeking uncapped punitive damages. So, yeah, we think that's a material commitment of corporate resources and that it's an indefensible one. I want to ask about sort of more concrete and then I want to pivot to the big picture in a minute. But first, I talked to us a little bit about some of the suits you've been bringing or some of the complaints you can bring. What are the most absurd practices you have identified. Sure. So I'll give you a couple examples. The very first one we did was about Coca-Cola's outside council policy. They brought in a new general counsel. He he his first major initiative was to blast out a an open published letter to all outside counsel saying if you want to all of our lawyers need comply with these policies, all future Lawyers hoping to have our business will also have to comply with these policies. And what are the policies? In all of our matters, you have to allocate work such that 30% of the time billed by associates and 30% of the time billed by partners will be billed by diverse attorneys defined on the basis of race, ethnicity, sex, gender, and did they? I don't remember right now whether they included disability status. I think they did. So, oh, and to police that, we're going to require you quarterly to report to us the race, ethnicity, sex, gender, and disability status of everyone whose name appeared on any of our bills so that we can reverse engineer this and verify your compliance. 
if you want to think about how many things that violates, it one required all of their law firms to violate Title VII by making assignments based on race. It required the disclosure of health information in a violation of what is it? Oh, that one I'm blanking on the HIPAA. Is that different? HIPAA? HIPAA is if it's by the doctor. If it's okay. by ADA doctor, it's is an ADA issue. Like FLPA or something uh, like that. Yeah, I've heard of this. I've heard of this. So, but in any case, I mean, it, there are multiple laws that that's requiring all their law firms to violate, but it didn't stop there, right? Because, I mean, they required this quarterly compliance report and said, if you fail to meet our thresholds in any given quarter, then we will unilaterally, no, we will give you one chance to grovel, apologize, and fix it. But if you miss in two quarters, we will unilaterally reduce what we pay for your work going forward by 30%. There were other provisions in this too, you about you know disclosing how you compensate your partners, requiring you to identify diverse attorneys yeah. as a future relationship partner within your firm for Coca-Cola and on and on and on. That's pretty egregious. I think it's probably not an accident that rather than choosing to defend this, they replaced the general counsel yeah. and took down the policy. There are, yeah, I mean, and then you've got like the whole host of corporations who have explicitly committed to making their hiring decisions based on race. Starbucks also, by the way, has, and a number of these corporations have, have pegged the, have pegged the consideration their officers receive to the future racial balance of their workforces so that like they're not only have they committed the corporation to changing the racial balance of its workforce, mm. but they've decided that they will reward or punish their higher ranking employees based on whether or not they take the actions necessary to do so successfully. Because uh, um, as I understand it, right, just having diversity targets in the absence of a hard quota, you can generally get away with if you say it's like aspirationally we'd like it if we were more diverse but like this but, is but, a but, question to be yeah. honest i mean the eeoc has said for decades that if you have a written affirmative action plan explaining what your targets are mm -hmm. and how those targets are bringing you towards correcting an imbalance in your workforce that it would be legal I think there's real reason to doubt that that guidance is still actually reflecting good law, given what the courts have done in the interim. It is still out there. It would impact what the EEOC presumptively would bring as claims, but that doesn't mean that individuals couldn't sue and that they wouldn't win if they challenged a, uh, an affirmative action plan. Right. But and even the basically established that like there are various things that that in order to do this, you must be able to show. And by the way, I don't think I think almost all of the affirmative right. things that are out there do not comply with these set of requirements. Right. But like, it's, and it's so especially right, though, if you're like pegging compensation to diversity tar, I mean, that you're, seems you're pretty clearly then yeah. taking ownership. Like it, it would really interfere with your ability to say, well, there was a rogue employee who misunderstood. Right. In fact, you've pegged their compensation to whether or not they achieved the end that you dictated they have to. So. We should, we should take a break for a quick message from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want us to, to zoom out a little bit. But first, let's, let's hear a word from our sponsors. From the grocery store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. And we're back. So, Dan, I want to I want to ask Aaron alluded at the start of their conversation to sort of broader fight about propagation of quote unquote wokeness, how to respond to it, sort of value of convention, you know, conventional weapons, as it were. There's a there's a thesis that gets floated around. We've talked we've had a bunch of people on the show talk about this. Richard Hanania, friend of the pod, talks about this. What what do you make of you know? I I I think it's sort of interesting that your position is essentially corporations are violating civil rights law. They're violating federal civil rights law. What do you make? And and there needs to be some remedy 
because of the risks that are associated with doing that. What do you make of the contention that you know, many of these same practices are rooted in cultural changes or norms that are wrought by those same laws? What do you make of that gap between you know, the, the, the tools that you're using and, and their potential relationship to the problems you're trying to deal with? Right. I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a couple of different responses there. Great. One, I think a lot of the things that some cite to as what civil rights law does are not actually based in what our civil rights laws say. They're based in mistaken interpretations of our civil rights laws, sometimes by institutions like the EEOC, sometimes by the courts that need to be corrected. But that, like, I don't embrace the Chris Caldwell argument that the entirety of the mm. civil rights, the accomplishments of the civil rights movement were a step away from American constitutional law. I would take the counter position that, in fact, the Lincolnian constitution rooted in the traditions of the Federalists dictated th that we get right the the civil rights of all Americans and assure the equal protection of the laws for all of our people. So I'd reject that part. Richard's point has some merit to it, to be honest, especially Title VII, especially after its amendment in 1991. And I know y'all have talked as well with Gail Harriet. She's the chairman of our board. She's got a point. There really are incentive effects internally that that established, which do over time work like a one-way ratchet, encouraging more and more protective efforts that eventually cross over into not being protective at all and affirmatively being abusive. So, I mean, I'm not going to tell you that that our answer is the only answer, but but I think that the the focus should be on restoring the Lincolnian Constitution right. and the original understanding of the civil rights enactments rather than fighting them, both because most of the things that people oppose, they don't actually say, and because on a purely pragmatic basis, setting your face against the most popular enactments in the history yeah. of Congress would be a remarkably foolish idea. Like, I would much rather put myself in the position of, defending those and insisting we get them right than arguing, you know, you should blow up the thing you love most. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with all of that. Just <laughs> in the interest of being kind of a devil's advocate contrarian, though, I one argument that I think people sometimes make is that the perversions you're talking about were rooted to some extent in the original laws themselves because the laws that there's sort of a sociological phenomenon where when you create protected classes in the law, it, you sort of engender, you create kind of these constituencies, right? The law itself constructs constituencies who then advocate for the law to be interpreted and expanded in this way. And so like, to me, the, the, the steel man of Caldwell is not that the Civil Rights Act, like, in, you know, necessarily inexorably leads to whatever. It's that once you basically say Blacks, whites, really anyone have kind of group rights qua members of the group, it, it sets in motion the sociological process of where stakeholder groups get set up advocacy groups start pushing for benefits and there's kind of a not maybe a legal logic but a kind of sociological logic that then in turn put creates pressure to to pervert the laws sure. the way you're describing so i mean and now obviously that's not necessarily an objection to anything you're saying but just how do you respond to that word sure i mean i'm gonna hone in on a couple different civil rights enactments because mm -hmm. i think they play out differently here and mm -hmm. One of them, I think, actually unfolds very similarly to what, almost exactly as you're saying. Most don't, right? Like the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 doesn't actually create protected classes. That's a made-up term from the judiciary. What the Civil Rights Act of 1964 says, it, it bars discrimination on the basis of race, color, or national origin. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say against some particular group. It, it, it disables... It disables a factor from being a, an element of decision making. The fact right. that we then interpreted that to mean that there are protected classes that you can benefit because that was the goal. Well, that's not in the statute. 
That's right. That's a that's a judicial mistake from the ten years following. So you know, and that's actually true of an awful lot of the civil rights enactments, like the Fair Housing Act. The Fair Housing Act has a, a blanket disability has a blanket prohibition on discrimination in housing sales and mortgages on the basis of a host of factors, the, the factors you would expect, right? So th there are those. On the other hand, there, there, there is the Equal Opportunity Credit Act, which was passed later. It was signed into law by President Ford. And it, it has the same blanket prohibition, but then it also has, is followed in that, in the statute by two provisions, two sets of exceptions. And one of the exceptions basically reads whatever the agency that, that is going to administer this. It's now the CFPB that didn't exist back then, but now it is. Whatever the CFPB says is cool. And if you go and pull the regulations, the CFPB in the, in order to effectuate a statute, which says you may not discriminate on the basis of race, color, ethnicity race, color, national origin, sex, marital status, yada, yada, yada. Their regulation winds up eventually saying, yes, you, you cannot have a policy intended to do that, but you can have a, a special program to extend credit to those who otherwise wouldn't get it. And that program can be crafted to require its beneficiaries to be of a particular characteristic, including race, color, or sex, as long as it doesn't discriminate against anyone and it wasn't crafted to avoid the law. Now, I want you to think about that because what program could be crafted to take advantage of this regulation that wasn't crafted to evade the law? Like literally, that's the only way it could ever come up. That should be an empty set. And yet they approve these all the time. So, and the, the, Biden administration's housing and urban development department has said that as long as the CFPB is approving those, we're just going to interpret the Fair Housing Act to also approve it, even though it doesn't have a carve out and we have no regulation saying that. So there certainly is a story that you can tell a lot like the one that you are of how the government could create a protected class. And once the protected class exists, it could demand disparate treatment. Right. But again, that's not actually what almost any of our enactments right. say. And to the extent it's what they say, I think there's a real, real strong argument. It's unconstitutional, right? Like if there is an equal protection requirement for the federal government and seven of the nine justices say that there is, it's real hard to imagine how it could be consistent with Congress's op obligation to equally protect Americans, to say, we will protect we will protect Americans from discrimination in the extension of credit on the basis of race. Oh, but not some races. Like that's right. Almost definitionally unconstitutional. Well, well. So, so I mean, I think, I, yeah. I'm again, I'm very sympathetic to everything you're saying. One more potential kind of devil's advocate argument, yeah. though. So, so I think you're right that that the text of the law, you know, doesn't include protected classes, right? And and indeed. The original, if you go back and look at the original legislative debates, they, they they were going out of their way to be like, no, 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 this will not allow quotas. You know, you even have like debates in Congress where they're like, absolutely, we are writing this so that there will be no quotas. We don't believe in that. Like it's 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 incredible how explicit they were. At the same time, I you know, when it comes to what the original intent of these laws were, I don't know. Is it really the case that the intent was just to outlaw discrimination or was the intent that, well, we're doing this in part because like, you know, we're kind of embarrassed by the plight of, you know, like African-Americans, particularly in the South and certain parts of the country. And like we I mean, it wasn't just the quality of opportunity. Like they, they, they thought that by passing this things substantively, materially would improve for a particular racial group. Like, I think there was, and so that's where I think this gets difficult, is is you can say, well, like, the court is just making this up, it's not in the law. On the other hand, it's like, well, why was the law passed? I mean, and how should we interpret it? I, I, I imagine that a, a protected classes advocate would say, well, look, I mean, we didn't just pass this, like, like of, of course, right, when this was passed, no one was worried about anti-white discrimination, really. Like the worry was, well, you know, like there is this one group that's been historically subjugated and like, we kind of want to fix that. 
I mean, I, I this is sort of a liberal argument, but like I I don't think it's that easy to dismiss. Like I can see why someone would interpret the law to to license protected classes given what was going on at the time. Sure. And look, I mean, you're right about the motivation and why we wrote this when we wrote this. That's that's true. And it's true of 1866 too, right? The very first civil yeah. rights enactment was not written then by accident. It was written then to combat the black codes that were being passed by the post-Civil War bourbon regimes in order to, as closely as they could, re-enslave black people. That's true. And, and look, and, and that history, that history is disgraceful. That doesn't, I think we're going to wind up, this would fold into a theory of interpretation. What is the job of courts? Like if the job of courts is to ferret out intent and to achieve the policy aims of legislators, mm. you're going to wind up in one world. And if the job of legislators is to instead figure out what was the original understanding of the words that were actually passed yeah. that went through bipartisanship, bipartisan, right. bicameralism and presentment, which were actually signed into law. Yeah. You're going to wind up a very different place because, because people did know what these yeah. words meant. Which, and, you know, you're saying that no one was terribly concerned about anti-right, anti-white racism in the sixties. There were people who were making those arguments. Sure, sure. They, they were the people who were outvoted because they were white supremacists and it wasn't a good faith argument, but they absolutely were worried about the fact that the people they had oppressed, who were the majority of their state, would seek retribution. And it's noteworthy that while the federal government stepped in to stop continued racial subjugation, they did it in terms that also said, yeah, we're not going to let that happen. Yeah. That in fact, equal protection means equal protection, and we're going to stop anyone from pursuing the particularly poisonous course our history demonstrates of race-based decision making. Yeah, I mean, and I think this this actually circles back to something else we talked about earlier, which is you know, there's all these kind of post liberals who want to make these the, see treat low capital as this very radical, you know, it's, it's, it's capitalism itself. So we have to you know, overturn everything. There's also kind of with that been an avant-garde kind of turn on the right against originalism, or at least pre-Dobbs there was with people yeah, like Adrian Vermeule. What's interesting is your, your argument just now basically was like, look, if we use originalism, the original public meaning, you know, and don't play this game where we try to ferret out intent, that's, that's the key really to your argument. I, I'm I am, that is the argument I'm making. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. That like the role of the judiciary, if we accept that it is what textualists and originalists have maintained for decades, the answer is very clear here. And yeah. I mean, I don't know if Professor Vermeule would come out quite the same way that I am. I'm pretty sure that Josh Hammer would, would be to say that one, to the extent that that's what we're doing, that's where this leads. And to the extent that we should have a thumb on the scale in some way in order to assure that we're interpreting the law in order to seek the the common good. Uh, a common good originalism is also going to come out the same way. So right. in fact, I think all of these traditions here probably point in the same direction. Yeah. But I tend to be a fusionist. So interesting. I want to I want to bring in one other theme and then we'll we'll go to closing thoughts in a couple of minutes. But so we've talked we mentioned very briefly ESG and now I'm going to go what the heck does ESG stand for again? Environmental sustainability, environmental social and governance. Yeah. There we go. Good job, me. Which is which, which is which is new breed of extra priority, which is I think the sort of straw man version which I have to be accurate is it's it's a way to smuggle in Social priorities that are otherwise not in the interest of 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 companies, non financial companies. Can you talk? So, so are you concerned about, for lack of a better word, the ESG counter argument that you know racially discriminating serves legitimate ESG goals and in that way is related to the interests of shareholders? How do you how do you respond to the sort of rise of ESG as a phenomenon? Sure, and I'm going to have a couple different answers there, if that's all right. Look, on the one hand, if the argument is that ESG is actually profitable and in the best interest of shareholders, I don't think that even facially passes a smell test. If it were true, you wouldn't need a special policy. If it were true, then the generalized fiduciary obligations to pursue profit would get you exactly the same place. So the only way that this can have any meaning at all is if, in fact, the people who are pu 
pushing it forward know deep down that what they're saying is nonsense. So, I, it, it, so first of all, the merits, they're simp- I think it's almost impossible to take them seriously. If we were to talk in, instead about where is it coming from, look, I do have a theory there. I had an article the Wall Street Journal ran last week pointing out that the three ESG investment giants, Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock, they they own themselves and they own each other. And they own 14 of the 15 largest banks in America. So if you're wondering where this is coming from, it's coming from one clique of people who have decided it's a good idea to use the leverage they've accumulated through passive investing in what others have pointed out is almost surely a flagrant violation of their fiduciary obligations to push what they prefer on every corporation in America. So that level of joint ownership of each other and everything else really is something that not me, but a state attorney generals should be looking at as an antitrust problem. Because if they own 14 of the 15, lar- if they control 14 of the 15 largest banks in America, if they are effectively each other's only competitors and control group, the Clayton Act was written about 100 years ago, I think in 1914, so more. It applies. And, you know, there have been articles in both the Harvard and Yale law journals um, explaining how horizontal ownership by these groups of other industries pose real problems under antitrust law, specifically the Section 7 of the Clayton Act. That's got to be infinitely more true in the context of their ownership of their own industry, right? So if you have that level of concentration, yeah, there is something that needs to be done. It just isn't going to be done by an individual shareholder. Aaron, do you do you want to do you want to ask? Do you have a closing thoughts? What's your what's your take? Yeah, what? Well, what I like about this approach is that it can be iterated, and it, it doesn't just attack an individual company. What it really does is it changes the incentive structure, right? Because you can. I, I don't think we discussed this, but you know a. a little technical piece of information that's worth noting is that there's like this big conservative kind of advocacy group that basically has like shares in all these major companies. And so basically you have a a group of shareholders who are sort of, you know, not individuals and thus not susceptible to the kinds of social pressures that an individual would be. and, And you just have it ready to go basically at every major company in the United States. So you can just go down the list and just anytime one of these places has a discriminatory policy, you will have a shareholder. What's what's the group called, Dan? The organization is called the National Center for Public Policy Research. Yeah. Yeah. They've right. They've been our client in a number of these, and I expect they will be. In more. Right. So you can just basically use this to like, you know, put pressure on every company in the, in the U.S. And, you know, we talk a lot about on the show about incentive structures and how there, there, a lot of the incentives do seem to go in one direction. And this, you know, if you scale it up and get other people to start filing these suits too, I think the thought is that it can kind of routinize pushback and routinize kind of, you know, damages and consequences for this, this sort of thing. And hopefully... Once that kind of those punishments are institutionalized and regularized, you know, you start to see the companies adjust and realize, wait a minute, you know, we don't just have to worry about the civil rights lawsuits from the crazy DEI person. We also have to worry about the shareholders, you know, suing us for all of our money in our personal capacity that, yeah, we don't want that. Right. So I, I, yeah, I think like the, what's great about this is it's a way of, of creating essentially an entirely new incentive structure and a new kind of set of structural forces to kind of counteract the the regime that we we've built up. I don't know, Charles. What what do you what do you take away from all? Yeah, this? I mean, I I alluded to this early on, but what I like about this approach is it's 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 not. I mean, it's the best way possible. It's not breaking new ground, right? It's 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 not unusual for fiduciary duty to be used as sort of a, as, as a backdoor to shape firm behavior. And what I like is, you know, th- this is customarily a left-wing approach and there's no obvious reason, notwithstanding, you know, the whims of the Chancellor Court of Delaware, there's no obvious reason that it can't be similarly applicable to concerns from the right. And, you know, I think this, this all speaks to some of the points you were making, Aaron, 
which is, you know, you allude to the sort of theory that well, capitalism is the sort of integralist theory, the sort of right socialist theory, and cap, and cap the root of capitalism and capitalism are one and the same. And it's like, no, actually, you 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 can sort of respond to the stuff with conventional weapons. So I'm 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 heartened by that, notwithstanding, you know, will will it work? We'll see. But it'll be it'll be good if it did. I think that's a I think that's a good cue to to go to recommendations. Aaron, do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week? Well, yeah. So on the subject of kind of appropriating the left's tactics and ideologies against it, there's a great piece in Compact Mag. It's it's short, but it's called the Conservative Case for Critical Theory. And it basically talks about how not not so much critical race theory, but like the original critical theorists, the sort of neo-Marxists, Horkheimer, Adorno, Marcuse, how basically their on one level, their ideas kind of have become hegemonic kind of within corporate America and within public bureaucracies. But on the other hand, right, critical theory, which is all about sort of unmasking kind of hidden operations of power, um, how, how this can actually, this is a very useful analytical tool for the right. And I've long thought that this was true and, and thought more people should make this argument. So I'm glad to see someone kind of put it in a pithy way in a, in a max. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm making faces over here because I don't trust the conservative case for X in any, for, for any X. I think it's, um, I think it's deliberately a, a, a kind of joke about, you know, you never, mm, yeah, you never know. Yeah, right. uh, never know. Uh, All right. Yeah, you never know. My recommendation this week, a little bit lighthearted. My wife and I have been watching the Hulu, I think it's Hulu, it's FX original, it doesn't matter. The on Hulu, the television show Reservation Dogs. It's uh Taiki YTT, right? That sounds right. No, maybe I'm wrong. Gosh, I've learned a lot about this show for endorsing it. Oh yeah, it's it's Joe Hard Show and Taiki YTT. It's through FX. It's about it's a it's it's a comedy about teens on an Indian reservation. We've been enjoying it a great deal. It's sort of an interesting case of, you know, sort of uh, diversity motivated uh, media done well, right? It's, you know, these, the, the, the kids are not just, the, the, the plot is not just look at these Indians, they're so oppressed, everything is horrible for Indians. They're like fully fleshed out and interesting characters. So we've enjoyed that immensely. That's my lighthearted recommendation this week. Dan, do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Sure. I mean, I guess I'll follow suit and talk about TV, sort of, only barely. Um, I know there's been a lot of discussion of the Amazon vehicle, The Rings of Power. I haven't watched it. I just haven't had time. That's not, you know, some sort of spite move. But it's loosely based, at least, on Tolkien's work, The Silmarillion, which I think is actually a fascinating book that way fewer people know anything about than his earlier, better known novels. So my plug would be whether or not you intend to eventually watch the TV show, pick up the book. The book's actually a fairly interesting theological work as well as pretty good fiction. Okay. Fair enough. That's a good, that, it, <laughs> read, read, read a different book. Read the somewhere. I haven't read somewhere. I think that's about all the time that we have. Thank you, Dan, so much for joining us. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, complaints about our failures or obligation to fiduciary duty, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. Until next time, I am Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon. 